You are listening to One Nation Under Crime, a historical, chronological true crime podcast. Each week, we go through our nation's history and discuss cases from each year starting in 1800. I'm Kayla. And I'm Leah. I won't make any jokes. Oh, about the number. I'm I'm keeping it to myself. I thought I had made a mistake when I said my name. I'm like, no, that has been my name for 43 years. It is. By the way, you did not make a big deal about my birthday for last week's episode. I'm a little sad. Did I? You did not. Did I not? Mm -mm. It was because I gave you a present. I'm wearing my present. Would you like to tell the people about Uh, your present that I had custom made for you? I got a fancy, snazzy, slatish blue. I would say, yeah, probably slatish slatish blue. Mm -hmm. A little deeper than slate, but we'll say slate blue. Sweatshirt in a lighter blue. um, Thread. Thread on the, where the pocket would be. It says, murder is bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yep. And on the left sleeve, it has O-N-U-C with a heart. Yep. You know, sure one do. nation under crime. Yep. Yep. That's yep. us. That's us. Yep. I... Kayla has a matchy <laughs> one in sand, so we are twinkies. Yes. So, yes, I made sure I had to special order yes. for Leah's birthday. So Yay. she got a special fancy sweatshirt. I did. For her so, 43rd birthday. 43. Woo-hoo-hoo. I'm not an even number anymore. I give it a year. Well, hmm. so. I'm odd. <laughs> we know that. Ha 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 ha. Much like our episode number. Yep. yep. Which is? Yep. We are to episode 69 this week. And, you know, I knew this would be a historic episode for a few reasons. Um, one, just there no, are jokes no words necessary. Made. I could say a lot right now. Um, but two, again, didn't plan this. Um, but I will say, just wait for our person of interest this week. Wait for, wait for, wait for. That's a really good, um, teaser. So anyway, our sources for this week, we have the New York Times. Fancy. We have encyclopedia.com. For those of you who don't know why I do that, it's from How I Met Your Mother. And She's just weird, guys. It's just part of her. I just realized, like, I never say why, because in How I Met Your Mother, he says, like, there's, it's not supposed to be encyclopedia because, anyways, it's supposed to be encyclopedia. And there's this whole episode. Is it Ted that says yeah, that? Yeah. It's this whole episode where, like, Ted corrects people by saying, like, encyclopedia. So that's why I do that. Um, so, yes, it's Ted, of course. Um, <laughs> so, you know. Uh, <laughs> then that I knew that, but yes. I do love the show. And then we have The Affair of the Veiled Murderess, an Annabellum Scandal and Mystery <gasps> by Jean Winston Adler. And our favorite, Murder by Gaslight. There you go. So we will get on to our people of interest and our births and deaths of this year because, guys, I went a little wild on our person of interest for this week. It's, it is necessary. It is des- deserved, most of all. Um, and I was really glad that this week's case was not very long because our person, trust me, guys, trust me, 
you're going to want to hear about this person. So we are going to get on to our births in 1854. January 9th. This is an interesting one because the person's name changes completely. Like, from one total name to another. Like, they wanted to change their name? I don't know specifics in this, but her name was Jenny Jerome, which, first of all, alliteration. Mm, Amazing. I love alliteration. You gotta love it. But she later became Lady Randolph Churchill. She was an American-born British socialite, and she was actually the mother of Winston Churchill. So I don't know how you get Jenny Jerome and then Lady Randolph Churchill. I don't know. It was very weird. So anyways, she had two totally different names. Uh, She was a Capricorn. January 29th, Frederick Baker. He's a physician and civic activist in San Diego, California. He was the uh, prime motivator in founding the Marine Biological Institution and was a co-founder of the Zoological Society of San Diego and the San Diego Zoo. I've been there I was going to say, recently. Leah has recently been there. Guys, it was so fun. A lot of people say the San Diego Zoo is a good one. And we didn't have a long, long time. I mean, you could go there as soon as they open and stay there until they close and not see the whole thing in a day. I mean, That's it's insane. just, it's it's huge. But we we had a fun time there. And my nephew, who is not huge on um, people dressed up in characters. Interesting. Like, you know, like mascots and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. He's not real big on those. Mm-hmm. He's he. I understand for the end of October. I understand. Yes, but he's he's not a big. They're fan sketchy. Of I mean, you know, can't see their faces. No, nope. but whatever. He he's not a big fan of those. They had people walking around, and you could see the person, but it, it's like the uh, costumes they have for the Lion King, the oh, Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they had we encountered people dressed with giraffes, and so they had. It was a person, and you could definitely see the person, but they had like the giraffe neck mm-hmm. on a, you know, and it yeah. was on a stick that they controlled, but they could make it come mm-hmm. down and do things. He was enamored. I mean, absolutely loved it. I would, I would, yes, as, as understanding his disdain for that as, as I do, uh-huh. I can see the fascination there. And I, yeah, yeah. I would agree. It was really because cool. that is very cool. Because the the Lion King is really cool in the way that they do that mm-hmm. on Broadway. That that's they were very good at creating that. You could see the animal. Yeah, but, that was yeah. really cool. But the what he he really loved like there was a male one that you know he kind of interacted with a little bit, mm-hmm. and then we came up on a girl one, and the girl one was kind of shy because he was acting kind of shy, oh. and then it knocked his daddy's hat off of his head. And he thought that was the funniest thing. I bet thing. he did. So anyway. That's hilarious. Great zoo. Thank you, sir, so, for founding all Frederick that. Baker. Thank you, Frederick He's Baker. He's an Aquarius. Oh, and Dr. Seuss, mm-hmm. uh, Theodore Geisel and his mm-hmm. wife, they um, Were funded, not born this year. Go ahead. No, but they funded the insect house at the San Diego Zoo. Mm. So there you Interesting. go. I was excited when I saw that. I was like, oh, that's Dr. Anyway, continue. Interesting. Hmm. Don't like. Mm-hmm. I think that's all the mm-hmm. knowledge I have. Interesting. Done. 
February, <laughs> all of it, period. Done. Um, so February 2nd, we have Emily Elizabeth Holman. She actually went by E.E. E. Holman for a specific reason. She didn't want to be known as a woman because she was one of the first female architects mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. She was an Aquarius. Anytime that I see that where they're like, AKA this super ambiguous name, I'm like, mm, okay, <laughs> something, something's going on. She was really smart and mm-hmm. did really cool things. March 14th, Thomas R. Marshall. He is the 28th vice president of the United States. He's a Pisces. Couldn't have even told you he was even involved in the presidency in any way. Um, Apparently, the American school system has failed me. Um, (laughs) So, May 11th, Albion Woodbury Small. That's a name. mm -hmm, Founded the first independent department of sociology in the United States at the University of Chicago and was influential in the establishment of sociology as a valid field of academic study. That's interesting. Yeah. he was a Taurus. July 14th, we have David Rudabaugh. He was a cowboy, outlaw, and gunfighter in the American Old West. He's often referred to by modern writers as Dirty Dave due to his alleged aversion to water, but there's no evidence that that's like Correct. You know, old dirty Dave. You know, old dirty Dave. <laughs> I mean, but everything that like then there were other things that I read about him that was like, no, people actually said he was like really well dressed and really well put together. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's very interesting, but he's a Gemini. Um, so it must have been his twin. Yeah, it was. It was for sure. Um, actually. That would have been, I said July. It would have been June 14th because I was like, nope, July. That would have been a, yeah. So June 14th. So yes, that would make him a Gemini. Uh, July 12th, George Eastman was born. He was an entrepreneur who founded the Eastman Kodak Company and helped, yep, helped bring the photographic use of rolled film to the mainstream. Very handy. He's a cancer. All the best ones are, you know. July 23rd. This is just a name. Uh, Bert, B-I-R-T, Akers, is a photographer and film pioneer, contributed to the early film industry um, as the first, like he contributed the first 35 millimeter camera. Um, and he had the first daylight loading home movie camera and projector. Oh. So he's a Leo. October 26th, Charles William Post was born. He is the inventor of breakfast cereal. Yum. Of course, had to be Post. There you go. Um, And foods manufacturer and pioneer in the prepared food industry. He is the founder of Post Consumer Brands. He was a Scorpio. December 25th, we have Ida. I kind of like that name, Ida. I think it's cute. Um, I And she's, so she's another first. Ida Elizabeth Dixon. She's a socialite and the first female 
golf course architect. Oh. It's a very specific area that I was like, huh. I never, like, I'd. I never really put thought to it that golf courses would need architects, but they do. But they like do. they do. Um, my boyfriend doesn't listen to our podcast. It's fine. Um, and I will go ahead and insert here. I beat him at putt putt recently, and <laughs> I am now undefeated. He is not. I hit a nerve last night when I made a comment about it, and I said something about. Oh, it was a commercial that was on TV for so we were watching football and it was a commercial where these two kids were playing putt-putt and they were like strategizing in the commercial. And I looked at him and I said, I wonder if they could be your tutor. And he just looked at me and all of a sudden he goes, that is not funny. <laughs> just had to tell my whole family yesterday that you beat me at putt-putt <laughs> and it was humiliating. And I was like, well, you know. Well, then beat me. I mean, we'll have to tell them. It was a lot of we we recently went to Gatlinburg and it was a lot of fun. We played the hillbilly putt putt where you play like <laughs> down the hill, which if people don't know about that, it's super cool. You get in this tram and it pulls you up the hill and oh. then you play down the hill. It's really, really cool and like really interesting. And the way that they kind of like do the holes and stuff, it's very fun. And so it was I I Oh, I beat him. Like I like a drum. I mean, he was furious. <laughs> he was like Was he did he throw his putter? He goes, I never knew you had a secret talent. And I was like, here's what I haven't told you. For the past two years, Ellie and I have been coming to Gallenberg every other weekend, and I have been working <laughs> on my putting skills. It is today that I can now officially unleash those skills to the world. He just looked at me and he was like, this is not a time for jokes. It, this is serious. It's putt-putt. I was like, okay. It is serious. I'm seriously so, kicking your tail. Yeah. So I beat him in putt-putt, and it was a great time had by all. So maybe not by all. Um, by me, yes. Okay. Uh, so I have Ida Elizabeth Dixon to thank for being the first female golf course architect and for helping me achieve my dreams of finally beating my boyfriend at at least one sport. <laughs> <laughs> like this is my and I told him I was like afterwards, I was like, we can do a rematch, and we never got to go to another place because we had just done so many different things. And so somehow it never we happened. are leaving town. And I was like, Well, I guess I'm undefeated. He <gasps> slammed on the brakes and stared at me and he's like do not mess with me right now and I was like I'm just saying I'm undefeated apparently and so yeah it was it was quite hilarious he's like I will there are, I will find a putt putt place that is good enough for us to go to and I will beat you again and I was like okay well a lot of talk for the person who lost the first time but okay I mean I don't see you stopping anywhere yeah yeah so you know just saying she was a Capricorn. Oh, and possibly, possibly, I forgot this part. She's the first female golf course architect in the United States, possibly the world, because they can't find another one so far. That's so, pretty cool. Pretty cool. She's Capricorn. Our deaths in 1854, April 30th. We have Matthew Williams, the first American born Roman Catholic priest, huh. which is very interesting for the time. So, yeah. Yeah, he's the first American-born Catholic priest, which was interesting. So that means we probably did talk about him. In, well, I don't know. We might have talked about him in an earlier 
one of our early episodes. It's possible. Um, July 31st, people of uh, fans of ONUC will know this name. Samuel Wilson died. He was the meat packer who was the real life basis for Uncle Uncle's. Sam. Well, <clears throat> let's come to this. This week's person of interest is a familiar favorite and a sad one as well. This week, we are pouring one out for someone because on November 9th of 1854, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton died at the age of 97. Gone too soon from this world. Eliza. And Peggy. So I put in here Hamilton title theory. So for those of you who do not know, one, lots of Hamilton references will be made in this section. And she was amazing. She, I, yes, I, I will go into it. I, Not many people could have been married to Alexander Hamilton. And wonderful though he was. To do the things she did, which we will get into. I have so much respect for her. Absolutely. And so there is a theory for those who are not fans of Hamilton, the musical, which how can you not be? It's fine. It's neither here nor there. We're okay if you go ahead and stop. Go to Disney Plus. Find a friend that has it if you don't. Yes. Watch, watch it. it. It's not the same as being there. I know. It's not. I know. It's and not. It, watch and it and come back. If you're watching it for the first time and not hearing, you know, for, you haven't heard the music or anything, watch it a second time. Yes. Maybe with subtitles might help. Yes, because it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I know. It, yes. There's very, there's a lot of clever things that you yes. will miss if you, yes. so... There is an entire theory, and okay. it took me a while to hear this theory. And once I heard it, it made perfect sense. Like, why is it called Hamilton? And as you go through and as you watch this masterpiece by Lynn Manuel Miranda, um, who's a genius, genius, you. Begin, we would love to have you on the show. Yes, uh, anytime. You begin to see, the more times you watch it, you begin to see that he is not the only character. No. It's also Eliza's story. And so there's this entire second theory that the reason Lin-Manuel named it Hamilton is because it's not just about Alexander. It's also about Eliza. Which I really like that theory. And I really hope that that is true. Well, but I mean, not even that though. I, I think that it's also how our nation wouldn't have been the same without Hamilton. Yeah. As well. I mean, how he... Despite everything. <laughs> and, and how he challenged mm -hmm. others, mm -hmm. even. I mean, even if he didn't do some of the things that he did, yeah. other pe he, he challenged others to bring it. And if like you we will. and we know we're we are well aware that there are a lot of people in our history that are problematic. We are very aware. No, we are very aware that there are problematic aspects to Alexander Hamilton as a person in, in and of himself. We are aware of that. That is not to say that people made really bad choices, but the more I have dug into Eliza's story, the more 
I really hope part of Lin-Manuel's goal was to also shine more light on Eliza. And and how much support she gave and how much, uh, how strong she was. And we'll go, we'll talk about it a lot. Like, guys, when I say, I'm glad I found a short case for this week, I, I had to cut down <laughs> all of my stuff about Eliza. And it's just because we love her. There's so many things and she did so much good that I think because I think it's a case of and we said this in an like in one of the episodes, I was very careful to word that Abigail Fillmore before I said she was the wife of Millard Fillmore. The first thing that I said about her was that she was a first and second lady because I prefer like. In those instances, when I can, I prefer to refer to like a woman like as what she did instead of who she was married to. Yes. Because that's more important. And I think that when a lot of people will see the name Eliza Hamilton or Elizabeth Hamilton, a lot of people, the first thing that you will see is wife of Alexander Hamilton. And she was much more than that as a person. And when you know she lived more of her life without him than with him, I think that says so, there's so many things that say so much about her. So we're going to go into Eliza. Elizabeth Schuyler was born on August 9th of 1757, making her a Leo. She was the second daughter born to the Continental Army General Philip Schuyler and Catherine Van Rensselaer. She would go by Eliza and Betsy throughout her life. And we have talked about the Van Rensselaers before in a few episodes. This is the same family. They are of the manor of Rensselaerswick. And they were one of the richest and most politically influential families in New York at this time. Eliza had seven siblings who many actually wouldn't know if you just paid attention to the musical. You wouldn't realize like she actually had a lot more siblings than just her sisters. And when in the musical, Angelica says, my father has no sons. <laughs> it's not true. Like that's, that's one of, and Lin-Manuel Miranda has said, that's one of the only lines that like wasn't true. And by the time it was fact-checked by Ron Chernow, he was like, he couldn't come up with anything else to fit in that line. And so he just was like, I have to let it go. Like, I have yeah, to let it go. Yeah. I have to. Um, but um, she actually had seven siblings who lived to adulthood. But all together, there were 14 Ooh. siblings, including... Angelica Schuyler Church and Margarita Peggy Schuyler Van Rensselaer. And I just put, yep, keeping it in the family. Because, <laughs> yes, her mother was a Van Rensselaer. So just inter interesting stories all, all around. We talked about and that. Peggy. Yeah, we went through an entire family tree that I discussed in a previous episode about, about that. So, so yes. Um Eliza's family was among the wealthy Dutch landowners who had settled around Albany in the mid-1600s, and both her mother and father came from wealthy and, like, well-known families. Um, despite the unrest of the French and Indian War, her father served in, and he was, like, it was fought kind of near her childhood home. Eliza's childhood was actually spent with her mother learning to read and sew, and they lived kind of a quiet life from everything that I can see. 
As a child, Eliza went with her father to a meeting of the Six Nations, and there she met Benjamin Franklin, who also stayed with the Schuyler family during his travels. How awesome I know. is that? James McHenry was one of Washington's aides who served alongside Eliza's future husband. And James McHenry said of Eliza, quote, Hers was a strong character with its depth and warmth, whether of feeling or temper controlled, but glowing underneath, bursting through at times in some empathetic expression. In 1780, Eliza went to stay with her aunt in Morristown, New Jersey. And this is where she re-met one of General George Washington aide-de-camps, Alexander Hamilton. Eliza had actually met Hamilton two years before when he was at the Schuyler's home for dinner as he was passing through town after doing some negotiating for Washington. So she kind of like, she'd already seen him. Like she'd already checked mm-hmm. out some things and been like, oh, okay, I see you. And at this time, she was probably 15 at that point when she saw him for the first time. So when they saw each other again in Morristown, New Jersey, it was kind of like, oh, he's grown up. And he you was know, like, oh, she grown up. Yeah, so it's kind of that's kind of like, what was going on? So it wasn't kind of this thing where they just met and immediately, like, they had already been acquainted somewhat. And with her father being in the war and everything, like, she knew who he was. This was not just a... And he knew who she was. Yeah, this was not a, oh, you know, a lot of, kind of a lot of people, when they listen to the musical, will assume that it was kind of like a love at first sight thing. And that's not what it was um, at all. Um, At the same time of their reacquaintance, Eliza met Martha Washington, and the two ended up having a lifelong friendship. Martha later said of Eliza, quote, she was always my idea of a true woman. What a compliment. I know. There is one story regarding Alexander and Eliza's meeting um, that night that says ex- <laughs> that says that Alexander was so excited after seeing Eliza that he forgot the password to enter army headquarters. <laughs> He's he just, so bum fuzzled. Yeah. Like, I, I don't remember. Just I, I, you know, you know, oh my God, Lin-Manuel Marion. Yes, yes, yes. That one at the hair. I get it. Yes. I don't have the green coat yet. No, I don't. Let me in. <laughs> like. We're not playing games here. Let me in. Um, so I just thought that that was really cute. As I, I don't remember, I met, I met, I know. I met Eliza tonight. She was, I know. She was really, pretty. really pretty. I just, I, I'm still floating on air. As, like, just let me in. You know who I am. Do I, mean, I need to get Washington over here? Don't, don't make me call Washington. He's asleep. I don't. I, I mean, don't let me. Don't make me write a letter. I know. Don't, don't. It'll be strongly worded. Trust. And as Lin-Manuel put it in the musical, you walked in and my heart went went boom. boom. So, try to catch your eye from the side of the ballroom. Everybody's dancing and the band stopped volume. (laughs) Um, So, yes, the two have now met. And the relationship between Eliza and Hamilton quickly grew even after he left Morristown for a short mission to negotiate a prisoner exchange. And that was only about a month after Eliza had arrived to Morristown. While gone on the prisoner exchange, Hamilton wrote Eliza continuing their relationship through letters. 
He then returned to Morristown where Elizabeth's father had also arrived in his capacity as a representative of the Continental Congress. There had been some talk in at least one letter between the couple of a secret wedding. Secret. Yes. So there's some speculation that they had actually secretly gotten married before. Um, But... By early April, they were officially engaged with her father's blessing. This is really important to note because this was not common for the Schuyler girls. Both Angelica and Catherine, who was a much younger sister, would end up both eloping and not getting their father's blessing. So it was kind of a weird thing that Eliza was one of the ones that actually did get her father's blessing. Um, She was a bad book girl. Yeah, so it was just, it was kind of funny to note that. so, that's why I'm Eliza and you are I'm, Angelica. Yes, that's accurate. <laughs> After Snoop. Yep. Yep. After two more months of separation, but with continuous letters and communication, on December 14th of 1780, Alexander Hamilton and Elizabeth Schuyler were married at the Schuyler Mansion. The couple honeymooned at what's called the Pastures. Um, and this was actually Eliza's childhood home. And it was referred to as the Pastures, Pasture with a capital P. Um, an estate. Yes, the, the estate, upstate, um, if, you, if you will. I got you. <laughs> yep. Um, Is there a place you know? Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander went back to fight in the war until him and Washington had a falling out. Eliza moved into her parents' home when Alexander... Did he call him son one more time? He did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did. And then Washington had to grovel and call him back. So interesting. Had to put the button to the letter. Did what? Had to put the button to the letter. No. <laughs> he did too. Button to the letter. The button. No. Yeah. It's not what they said. Yeah, it is. No, it's it's not. Put the button to the letter. No. What did it say? Are you talking about? And guns and ships. Yeah. You gotta put the button to the letter. No, it's not button. Yeah, like this seal. That's not what it says. What does it say? I can't think of it right now. Hold, hold on. <sighs> As usual, we are back. I had to look it up. As usual, I am right. Uh. <laughs> he says, you know you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you know, you got to put some thought into the letter, but the sooner the better to get oh, your right hand. Oh, that was a button back. to the letter because you has to put the seal on it. Oh well, no, the thought into the letter. I was like, I know that's not right, but I can't oh, well. think of what it is right now. That's what I was saying. <laughs> so, anyways, um, Eliza moved back in with her parents uh, at this time, and this is when she found out she was pregnant with their first child, Philip. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I know. In 1787, Eliza actually sat for a portrait executed by the painter Ralph Earle, who was very famous and influential at the time. He was being held in a debtor's prison. And Alexander had heard of Earle's kind of like state at that moment and asked if Eliza would be willing to sit for him so that they could pay him and he could buy his way out of the prison, which he actually did use the money and was able to get out of prison at that time. So at this time, um, Eliza now had three young children. Her third, which was Alexander, was born on May 17th, 
uh, May of 1786. And she actually might have been pregnant at this time with her fourth child. I couldn't find out, but that's James Alexander um, would be their fourth. Um, But in addition to their own children, in 1787, which I find this extremely interesting, giving the rest of Eliza's life. Um, Eliza and Alexander took into their home Fanny Antel, the two-year-old youngest child of Hamilton's friend, Colonel Edward Antel, whose wife had recently died. In October of that year, Angelica, so Angelica Schuyler, wrote to Alexander, quote, All the graces you have been pleased to adorn me with fade before the generous and benevolent action of my sister in taking in the orphan Antle under her protection. So it is confirmed that this did occur. Very sweet. Yes. Two years later, Colonel Antle died in Canada. And Fanny, the child, who at this time would have been four, continued to live with the Hamiltons for another eight years until an older sister got married and she was able to take Fanny into her home so that she could live like with her family again. Wow. Later, James Hamilton, one of the Hamilton's children, would write that Fanny, quote, was educated and treated in all respects as the Hamilton's own daughter. It's like she was not any different. They gave her all the same... Education, everything. One of the kids. Yeah. She well, just, I mean, when you've got 10 already, what's one more? Well, at this time, they would have had f- five, four. Four. Yes. The, well, three. And then the fourth one was about to be born. And then, yeah, so she would have been the fifth. Fanny would have been the fifth brought into the house. But still, like, you had, like, I get it. You have a lot of money. So, like, you have it to spare. But that was just kind of yeah, interesting. Not everybody at the time. would do that. Not every, today. Not a lot of people even do that. So, well, today there's so yeah. much red tape. And yeah, it's it's just stuff. it's just insane. Um, Eliza also continued to aid Alexander through his political career. She served as an intermediary between him and his publisher when he was writing the Federalist Papers. Hamilton wrote the other fifty one. <laughs> I was waiting on that. I mean, she um, also. She was copied out portions of his defense of the Bank of the United States, and she also sat up with him all night so that he could read Washington's farewell address out loud to her as he wrote it. Such a good farewell address. Such a good one, yes. Um, in 1797, an affair came to light that had taken place six years earlier between Hamilton and one Mariah, Mariah Reynolds. Reynolds. Dun, her, dun, 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 Um, <laughs> yes. Why is Peggy wearing a red dress? Uh, yeah. So, for those who don't know, I showed my daughter Hamilton the musical. And if you are not aware, um, at the intermission when we're going to act two, a lot of the actors from act one they change characters and there's something about them, not just clothing wise, but like their hair or something about them changes to where if you're not paying attention, you wouldn't know it's the same yeah, actor or not actress. Necessarily, yeah. Yeah. Like some of them you can, but like everybody knows David Diggs. So like, you know I him, mean, but if you're not really paying attention, you may miss that somebody is the same character. So I showed my daughter Hamilton 
And as we're watching it and this song starts, she looks up at the TV and she goes, why is Peggy wearing a red dress? (laughs) And I was like, it's not Peggy. I had to like explain the whole con. And she goes, I like the yellow one better. I was like, <laughs> okay, honey. Um, thank you. We we like her better in the yellow one too. She was, she ain't gonna mess up you know. So, yeah, that was that was interesting. Um, Eliza initially didn't believe that Hamilton could have done this, but then Hamilton published a pamphlet, the Reynolds pamphlet, admitting to his one year adulterous affair in order to refute the charges that he had been involved in speculation and public misconduct with Mariah's husband, James Reynolds. So as we know from everything, James Reynolds found out about Mariah and Alexander, and he was extorting Alexander for money. Well, when this occurred, then when Hamilton was kind of, you know, like the Bank of the United States, James Reynolds tried to come forward and say, hey, that money that he paid me to sleep with my wife, all of that was government money. So here you go. He came out with the Reynolds pamphlet, Alexander did, to like refute all of that and be like, here are the receipts. Like none of this money, which like, not your best idea. Um, So... That's kind of, in a nutshell, the reason for the Reynolds pamphlet. Um, Have you seen this? (laughs) You're never going to be president now. Never going to be president (laughs) now. um, Even though at this time, uh, that's when it goes into Eliza singing Burn, which breaks my heart every time. So (sighs) when Eliza in Hamilton... This is now just turned into a Hamilton recap. Um, but they're on the out. It's you yes, she finds out that this is true. And there's a song called Burn. And she has all of the letters that Hamilton wrote her. And she's sitting there and she says, I'm I remember the words that you wrote to me. And she's talking about, you know, like how you filled my head with all of these palaces and in your paragraphs and you know, how it was so beautiful and how she showed her sister and her sister said, you know, you've married an Icarus. Like he's, he's gone too close to the sun. Like he's, you know, this was always going to happen. And then she says, I'm erasing myself from the narrative. And she starts burning the letters. I mean, how, how and it is just, it's beautiful and bold and just, and it's it's a pretty song. And Philippa Sue is just gorgeous and her voice is perfection. Like that's what, if you believe in angels or anything, like that's what an angel sounds like. Like she, she's beautiful, beautiful, but, but yes, that's so what I, they were on the outs, which, I mean, Eliza was pregnant when the Reynolds pamphlet came out. Mm. And she actually left Hamilton and she went to her father's house where she ended up having her son, William Stephen. And she only returned to the city to live with Hamilton in early September of 1797 because the local doctor had been unable to cure their eldest son, Philip who she took with her to Albany 
And Philip ended up getting typhus. And the doctor in Albany couldn't heal him. So the only reason she came back to New York was to get Philip to a better doctor. Wow. She didn't come back for him. She came back for Philip. I'm not here for you. And so it's just, over time, Eliza and Alexander reconciled. And they remained married. And had two more children together. The first was Elizabeth, obviously named for Eliza. She was born November 20th of 1799, before their eighth child was born, however. Eighth child. They lost their oldest son, Philip, who died in a duel on November 24th of 1801. After being shot on the dueling fields, Philip was brought uh, to Angelica and John Church's house, where he died with both of his parents next to him. Their last born, who was actually born the next June. So she was like newly pregnant mm-hmm. with this child. Um, and he was named Philip in his honor. So yes, and, and I talked about it in an earlier episode. There are two Phillips. So there's, there's Phil, who's the youngest. That's what they usually call mm-hmm. him. And then there's Philip, who was their son that died. And how crazy is it that she's had so many children that she is, she gives birth to a child who is born after her after oldest After an oldest is old enough to be in college to, and have been in a duel. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, know. woof. Yeah. And so like a minimum at this time of 16 years. Yeah. So, which yes, is, is, that's a, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. So, uh, let's see. During this time, Alexander had commissioned John McComb Jr. to construct the Hamilton family home, which we talked about in episode one. One. So in 1802, the same year that young Philip was born, the house was built and named Hamilton Grange after Alexander's, which I didn't know this. It was named after we talked about Alexander and how his father was like, not a part of his life, how he left off, but like his dad was alive. There was, it's a very weird, weird relationship. Hamilton Grange was named after Alexander's father's home in Scotland, Mm -hmm. which is just like, okay. So Eliza and Alexander continued to live there um, in their new home. And it's like, they apparently had like a very loving relationship. They were very like, still very much in love with one another. And there were letters written between them at the time that like you can see how that was. It was, it was beautiful. Eliza and her husband would not get to enjoy their newly built home together for long. Um, because two years later in July of 1804, Alexander Hamilton became involved in a similar, like they call it an affair of honor, which is what it is. Um, which led to his infamous duel with Aaron Burr and his death. Burr shot first. I will never secede that he did not. Anyway, before the duel, I'm sorry, I had to put this in here. Don't cry. Before the duel, he wrote Eliza two letters, telling her, quote, the consolations of my religion, my beloved, can alone support you. And these you have the right to enjoy. Fly to the bosom of your God and be comforted. With my last idea, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. Adieu, best wives and best of women. Embrace all my darling children for me. 
Ugh. Mm. Best of wives, best of women. It's just like, for those to be some of the last words that your husband ever wrote to you has got to be one of the most bittersweet mm-hmm. moments for that. So Alexander Hamilton died on July 12th of 1804 with Eliza and all seven of his surviving children by his mm. side. By this time, two of Eliza's siblings, Peggy and John, had also died. Mm-hmm. Um, after her husband's death in 1804, Eliza was left to pay Hamilton's debts. Mm. Their house, the Grange, on a 35-acre estate in Upper Manhattan, had to be sold at public auction. However, she was able to later repurchase it from the Hamilton's executors who had decided that Eliza could not be publicly dispossessed out of her home and purchased it themselves to sell back to her at half the price. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So in 1806, two years after her husband's death, she, along with several other women, founded the Orphan Asylum Society. Eliza was appointed the second directress or vice president. In 1821, she was named the first directress and served for 27 years in this role. In those roles, she raised funds, collected uh, needed goods, and oversaw the care and education of over 700 children. Wow. Which makes you think that them taking in Fanny at, like, Antle was probably the first, yeah, started that. So that was why I put that in there, because that had to, that has to have some kind of, of connection Um, in my opinion. Um, By the time she left, she had been with the organization continuously since its founding a total of 42 years. Wow. In November of 1833, at the age of 76, Eliza resold the Grange for $25,000, funding the purchase of a New York townhouse, which is now called the Hamilton Holly House, where she lived for nine years with two of her grown children, Alexander Hamilton Jr. and Eliza Hamilton Holly, which is why it's the Hamilton Holly House. Makes sense. In 1848, she left New York City for Washington, D.C., where she lived with her widowed daughter, Eliza, until 1854. So she was married. Then she was widowed. They both left the Hamilton Holly House and went to Washington, D.C. So Eliza defended Alexander against critics in a variety of ways following his death, including by supporting his claims of authorship of George Washington's farewell address and demanded an apology from James Monroe over his <laughs> accusations of financial improprieties. So at this time, there was a rumor going around that Hamilton did not write Washington's farewell speech. And she was like, I was there. I did I not get sleep for nights. Yes, <laughs> I am aware he wrote this. So fight me. Eliza wanted a full official apology from Monroe, which he would not give until they met in person to talk about Alexander shortly before Monroe's passing. Elizabeth Hamilton petitioned Congress to publish her husband's writings in 1846. She reorganized all of Alexander's letters, papers, and writings with the help of her son, John Church Hamilton and preserved through many setbacks in getting his biography published. With Eliza's help, John Hamilton, her son, would go on to publish the history of the Republic of the United States of America as traced in the writings of Alexander Hamilton and his contemporaries. 
This book would set the bar for future biographies of Alexander Hamilton. That's awesome. She was so devoted to Alexander's writings that she wore a small, they said package, so I don't know if it was a locket or what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But she wore a small package around her neck containing the pieces of a sonnet that Alexander wrote her for her during the early days of their courtship. She wore it until she died. In June of 1848, when Eliza was in her 90s, she made an effort for Congress to buy and publish her late husband's works. In August, her request was granted, and the Congress bought and published Alexander's works, adding them to the Library of Congress and helping future historians of Hamilton view his works even today. Along with getting Alexander's works stored, um, while Hamilton was in her 90s, she remained dedicated to charity work. After moving to Washington, D.C., she helped Dolly Madison and Louisa Adams raise money to build the Washington Monument. Yep. By 1846, Eliza was suffering from short-term memory loss, but was still vividly recalling her husband. And it said she would see him and she would talk to him. Oh. So, like, have full conversations with him. And one of the things, like, one of the things that she would say to him is, like, when he told her, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. One of the things she would say to him when she was kind of in her state of not remembering things is she would say, I'm coming to a better world. So, ugh, I can't. It's just so sweet. Um, So, Eliza died in Washington, D.C. on November 9th of 1854 at the age of 97. Wow. She had outlived her husband by 50 years and had outlived all but one of her siblings, which was Catherine. And the only reason she outlived Catherine is because she was 24 years younger than her. <gasps> Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton was buried near her husband in the graveyard of Trinity, Trinity Church, Church in New York City. We have both seen that. We grave. have both been there. Yes. Eliza. No. Eliza is buried um, by her husband. Angelica is buried right beside that. And then not far from there, Philip is also buried, the oldest Philip. And he actually, we talked about it, um, he had an unmarked grave. We talked about it in the Manhattan Burial Crisis episode that he had an unmarked grave for a long time. So, like I said, thank goodness we have a short case this week because we are getting into it now. May 22nd of 1854, Henrietta Robinson stood trial in Troy, New York for the murder of two people. During the trial, she sat with her face covered with a dark blue veil, earning her the name The Veiled Murderess. I mean, yeah. Kind of mysterious. She remains that way. So, since we talked about Queen Eliza this week, um, RIP Queen. Elizabeth. You said Eliza. I know, but we did talk about Queen Eliza, but I was just saying RIP Queen Elizabeth. Gotcha. So, you know. Yes. Yes. Who was On Leah's birthday. I know. Oh, my gosh. So, guys, I know. (laughs) That was so not the birthday present I wanted. It was not. So, for. Can I tell them the text that you sent me? Yes. She goes, so the queen died. Philip and Camilla were not what I wanted for my birthday. 
Charles. Oh, Charles. Charles. And you Camilla. don't even know. No, I'm not. Charles. So Charles and Camilla are not what I wanted for my birthday. I was like, where do I've I been talking about Philip for the past 15 yeah. minutes. So. <laughs> I said, where do I go to get an exchange? Yes. So, yes. Um, so since we talked about Eliza this week, we are not going to go into the history of Troy, New York, or this episode would be two hours long. So, um, the case involving Henrietta Robinson is one that is shrouded with a lot of mystery. The veiled murderess. Yes. Her name might not even be Henrietta Robinson. I know a lady named Henrietta. That's an interesting name. She's an interesting lady. So, um, she was well known in Troy and she was described at this way. Quote, at first glance, a beautiful, refined young woman of means. But those who had close encounters with her know Henrietta to be wild and unpredictable with an unfounded fear of persecution. She was known to carry a revolver with her around town, and she was quick to show it to anyone who hurled an insult at her. In 1855, biographer David Wilson wrote this about Henrietta. Quote, she fancied that a gentleman who resided near her, in addition to his active participation in the general persecution that raged against her, had stopped the navigation of the Hudson River. She was found groping in the dark through the halls of public buildings, inquiring for the police office and demanding of the authorities' assistance to protect her house, which all the time had remained unmolested and undisturbed. She wandered around the city at night armed with her revolver and presented it at the breast of one who had curiosity to observe her movements. She sallied out at a very early hour in the morning, clad only in her night garments and arousing an acquaintance from sleep, requesting the loan of a dress with a singular apology that she had forgotten her outward apparel upon leaving home. So basically kind of to sum that up because what they were saying is there were this is like a few different instances where like she would go to the police and say that they needed to come and watch her house because her house was like being ransacked but then the police would get there and the house hadn't been ransacked and then they would see like she tried to stop boats navigating the Hudson River like she did a lot of kind of outlandish things and then she sounds a bit crazy she there there's speculation there's a lot and and she had a gun that she would carry around yeah, with and, her and I'm sorry to use the term crazy um it it sounds as though she has some sort of mental issue we'll see but no she doesn't oh so and that's like based on a lot of different uh theories um i think there's some other things going on here um i think she might have been eccentric but not uh not attention seeking Yes. Okay. Very much so. And we'll get into that in a second. As I said before, Henrietta was secretive. It's unknown if that was her actual name. And when she was asked about herself, the stories were as spectacular as anyone would imagine. And they would often contradict one another. Oh, no. She told some people. She a liar. Yeah. She told some people that her father was a lord who threw her out. She once said that she was the daughter of a poor Irishman from Vermont. And then sometimes she spun a story similar to Cinderella with her being the titular character. Oh. Regardless of what story she told, it always ended with there being a conspiracy against her and she was hiding from her enemies. 
1853, Henrietta was living in a quaint cottage with an elderly gardener and a servant girl. The cottage was adjacent to the general store in town, which was owned by Timothy Lanigan. Also really like that name because every other letter is an A, so it's fun to say. Oh. Um, the store was run by the Lanigan family, and they lived in an apartment that was connected to the business. This wasn't your typical general store that we might think of today. Not only did the store sell alcohol, but it was the meeting place for everyone nearby to dance and party as there was also a bar in the store. So it was kind of like... It was the place to be. It was a general store. It was a bar. It was a restaurant. It was all these different It was the things. meeting place. Yeah, like everybody would kind of go there. for every. It was for everything but yes. church and school. Yeah, pretty much. Which, I mean, I don't know. It depends on what kind of church you want. Um, so... And you did get an edu- education of some sort there. You know, had to be some kind. So really, really sure one-stop shop if you really think about it. Um, it wasn't uncommon for Henrietta to send her workers over to fetch some groceries for her. And it wasn't long until that list included beer and brandy. According to some, it was enough to keep Henrietta in a state of drunken disillusion. There That's were times, no yeah, there were times that Henrietta would go out to the Lanigan store and drink with the other patrons in the bar. Inevitably, at some point, a joke or an insult would be said at her that set off a spark and Henrietta's revolver would come out, which of course would lead her to being kicked out of the bar. Uh, yeah. I mean, what do Put you expect? Put that away. You know. On the morning of May 25th, 1853, Henrietta sent her servant to the Lanigan store to purchase a quart of beer. Just two hours later, Henrietta made her way over to the bar, and after a few drinks, she and another customer started arguing. Miss Lanigan, which we won't ever get her first name. So Miss Lanigan asked Henrietta to leave. The argument must have been forgotten by about 1 p.m. that day. So keep in mind, this was in the morning. (laughs) So by 1 p.m. that day, um, Henrietta strolled back into the bar. She saw the Lanigans having lunch with their sister-in-law, Catherine Luby. Who was staying with the Lanigans at this time? Luby. Luby. Here we go, Luby. It's L-U-B-E-E. They invited Henrietta to join them, and the group enjoyed a nice... Did I say that? Yep. Mm -hmm. To join them. I thought I said, they invited Henrietta to enjoy them. Nope. (laughs) Nope. This is not the Donner episode. Um, And the group... (laughs) And the group enjoyed a nice meal together. Once it was over, Henrietta offered to buy a round of beer on her since they were so kind to invite her to have dinner. Miss Lanigan declined, but Timothy and Catherine accepted, and Timothy left the table to fetch some beer. Henrietta asked if he could bring back some sugar because it would make the beer taste better. He obliged. Timothy didn't bring enough back to the table to fill their glasses, so he opted to go get some more. By the time he came back, he saw that Henrietta had added sugar to their cups, but she decided she should probably get home and left the store. Just a few hours later, both Catherine and Timothy fell gravely ill. It was later surmised they had been poisoned with arsenic. Oh, no. In this case, it was pretty clear who the culprit was, and Miss Lanigan told the authorities immediately. A nearby pharmacist confirmed that he had recently sold arsenic to Henrietta, and arsenic was also found in Henrietta's home. Later in the day, when Timothy Lanigan and Catherine Luby died, Henrietta Robinson was arrested on the charges of murder. She wasn't indicted until nine months later. Oh. 
in February of 1854 due to a series of hearings and delays. Her actual trial didn't begin until May of 1854, an entire year after the murders. So like to kind of explain how rare this is, one of the episodes that we just covered two weeks ago, the murder. Everything happened in like three. Two months. Yeah. Two months. I was going to say three months. But yeah. yeah. Like this was not common at all. This was this was weird. Like, and people noticed that this was not common. And she was pretty brazen in how she did this, too. Yeah. By the, the way. The citizens of Troy started to wonder if there had been a plot behind the scenes trying to keep Henrietta safe from trial because of all the setbacks that were occurring. In July of 1854, Henrietta attempted to die by suicide by drinking vitriol, which is sulfuric acid. Oh. Yeah. The mysteries piled up because no one knew how Henrietta could have obtained the poison in prison. And with more mystery came more speculation from the town that someone or some group would rather her die in prison than be involved in a public hearing. Henrietta became a nationwide sensation. Mm. Stories about her started to pop up all around the United States and in Canada. Most of them claimed to be able to identify her true identity, but nothing was ever proven. One said that she was actually a Miss Campbell who kept a drinking house in the suburbs of Quebec and had run away with a cab driver. A Troy paper claimed that she was the daughter of a Dr. Robinson of Montreal who had died nine years before in a lunatic asylum. A newspaper in Albany claimed that she was the daughter of an Irish gentleman of rank who had been disinherited for marrying the son of her father, Stuart, so she had been disinherited by, yeah. for marrying him. The most interesting story of Miss Robinson's history began as a rumor circulating in Troy. Someone who had attended the Troy Female Seminary identified her as a classmate named Emma Wood, the daughter of William F. Wood, a prominent citizen of Quebec. When the story was printed by the Troy Times, Mr. Wood sued the paper for libel. The Troy Daily Whig received a card from the Wood family categorically denying that Henrietta Robinson was their daughter, though four of Mr. Wood's five daughters had attended the Troy Female Academy. All had since married and were living in England, Ireland, and Scotland. We finally make it to the trial on May 22nd of 1854. Henrietta had a pretty extensive law team on her side, and they were prepared to use her history of erratic behavior and the fact that there wasn't a motive to prove that she was innocent by reason of insanity, which, if we'll remember, was the monotonous trial Mm -hmm. that occurred in the UK. The prosecution was quick to use the fact that Henrietta might have been drunk, um, but that wasn't a reason to say she was insane, and it also <laughs> wasn't a valid excuse for murder. Um, sim- both, are, both are true. Yeah. Simply Henrietta being thrown out of the bar for someone in Henrietta's mental state would have been motive enough. But it wasn't so much the trial that everyone was focused on. Henrietta appeared every day in court with her face covered by a dark blue veil. Some sources will say that it was black. But there's an actual entire book written about Henrietta. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that it was dark blue. So okay. just to say, like, I will say one source that we use a lot 
says that it's black, but it's not. Okay. So, well, sometimes, you know, you have a dark blue and you're not really sure if it's dark blue or, yeah. or black until you hold it up by black and you're like, oh, wait. Yeah. No. So I'm not sure, but it, it for sure was blue. Um, when the witnesses were called to identify her, she would reluctantly lift the veil for the witnesses' eyes only. On the third day of the trial, the judge told Henrietta to remove the veil or face charges of contempt in court. Henrietta responded through her attorneys <laughs> that she would rather submit to whatever punishment required than <gasps> to remove the veil. Well, the judge caved in and Henrietta wore the veil for the rest of the trial. Oh my gosh. That wasn't hard. But by the end, Henrietta Robinson was found to not be insane and she was found guilty of first degree murder. Question. Did the judge have good hair? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's important. I mean. Just have to say. Did he have both legs? <laughs> and good hair. The bar is low. Was he a peg leg? Or the bar no. is low. So, just saying. I mean, I'm, I'm just, just wondering. Um, just a thought. Harkening back to former cases. You know, it is what it is. So, once the verdict was read... Henrietta jumped up and shouted, shame on you, judge, shame on you. There is corruption here. There is corruption in the court. There were several appeals after the trial that kept the sentencing phase pending until June of the next year. Oh, my, my, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So this is two years. Two years. Is she in jail during this time or is she yes. at home? She's in jail. Okay. She is in jail. Henrietta was brought into court. Um, at the judge's request, she raised her veil as the sentence was read. She was sentenced to hang on August 3rd of 1855. The governor of New York received appeals from citizens throughout the state to spare Henrietta's life as the date of the execution loomed. Whether it was the request of everyone or due to influence of unforeseen forces that seemed to protect Henrietta through this entire process. The governor agreed to commute her sentence to life in prison. Henrietta was not pleased. Do we know who she really is yet? You'll see. Um, Henrietta had already made her peace with God and said she was ready to die. Oh, she dear. didn't want to stay in prison. She's like, no, no, I don't want it to be life in prison. By this time, Henrietta had been recognized again, this time as Charlotte Wood. Remember Wood had mm -hmm. the daughters? Mm -hmm. So this was another one of the Wood's daughters who had also attended the Troy Female Seminary. Many accepted this as her true identity, but she never confirmed it. Henrietta Robinson spent 18 years in Sing Sing prison which we talked about when it first opened sing sing no joke y'all like mm. no joke is it like ask fan it's bad yeah, yeah <laughs> like ask fan or alcatraz as some may call it um just saying so she was then transferred to the prison in auburn new york which we also talked about that prison that was the prison that, like people weren't allowed to talk oh yeah yeah um in 1873 in 1890 she was transferred again to the metal i think it's Matawan Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where she spent the last 15 years of her life. Hospital records indicated that she was 78 years old at her last birthday, but she said that she was 89. So, there is an article 
that I found in the New York Times. And it is interesting. So the title of it is, Veiled a Murderess Dies with 50 Years Secret. So here's the article. Henrietta Robinson, who was known as the Veiled Murderess and whose name was assumed, died at the Madawin State Hospital this morning. According to the only clue she ever gave to her identity, she belonged to one of the English titled families. This much of her secret was gleaned by the hospital physicians about a year ago. Securely sewed in her needle case, the authorities found after her death a locket and a worn piece of newspaper upon which was written, quote, When I first saw this world of joy and pain, assailed by doubt and ever will remain, I wondered what it meant to live and die. The question oft I ponder, but in vain. Of late years, she had been visited by no person but her attorney who saw her once every five years. She received a box at Christmas from a Philadelphia woman whose identity hospital authorities refused to divulge. As no one has claimed the body, she will be buried at the hospital cemetery. When it was apparent she was going to die, she was urged to reveal her identity, but refused. She said that she had kept the secret during the half a century she had been in prison and it would die with her. Miss Robinson was arrested for the murder of Timothy Lanigan and Catherine Luby in Troy in 1853. She insisted on wearing a veil during her trial, although urged to remove it by judge, uh, by the judge Martin Townsend, her attorney, um, and her attorney. She was convicted and sentenced to be hanged and sent to Sing Sing in 1855. Her sentence was commuted, um, and then it just kind of goes through. Uh, what we already talked about. She was a quiet prisoner and of late years, she had spent her time in making lace, which she wore. The hospital records show that she was 78, but her birthday anniversary last Wednesday, she said she was 89. Wow. Henrietta Robinson, as I said, was urged to reveal her true identity, even to her deathbed, but... The veiled murderess took her secret to the grave. And that's the case of the veiled murderess. Well, I want to know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows who she was. Me. A lot of people say that she was the Woods' daughter. Like, and that something happened. And that's why they refused to claim her. Um. Because they never said what happened to the fourth daughter. Because remember, they said they had four daughters. Mm-hmm. The three that had gone to that school were all married and gone. Oh. So where did the fourth one go? Mm. And they never said anything about it. So it was very interesting. But yeah, she remained a secret for the rest of her life. She went by the name Henrietta Robinson and no one claimed her body when she died. That I think is the most heartbreaking thing. It is heartbreaking. But how weird is that? Like, even after she died, no, which I mean, I guess anybody who would have known her would be dead. Yeah. By that time, because she'd been in there for 50 years. But I mean, you know, I think that's one of the saddest things. To, I mean, nobody more knew mm-hmm. who died. That's, that's so sad. Yeah. And she, I mean, till her last day, she never told anyone who she was. Hmm. And that's why it's like such a big. Um, there's like a whole book written about her and things mm-hmm. like that because people were like, I, who was she? 
Yeah. Nobody knew. Nobody could figure it out. And then for her trial and everything to be pushed back so many times and for it to take two years. Somebody was. Something was going on. Yeah. And they were like, how did she get sulfuric acid in prison? Yeah. Like, that's not something you easily acquire. I mean, it was just very odd. And, And just the stories around her continued to grow. And it was just very interesting. So we have a website where you can find any and all ONUNC and for ONUNC? No. ONUC. You put an extra word. ONUNC. ONUC information you're looking for. ONUNC and I. I mean, it was just, I just kept going. It's One Nation Under Crime. Guys, please go leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Five stars only. I mean, my birthday's already passed, but I'll take a belated birthday present. I celebrate the whole month. Well, I mean, the whole month, you know, I mean, just saying, guys, just do that. It'll be, it'd be great. We do have a Patreon if you would like to help with the cost of making and hosting the show. Um, we would greatly appreciate it. It's patreon.com slash one nation under crime. Thank you guys for listening to this week's special, special episode with Eliza, with Eliza, who we love. Gosh, love her. So we will see you here. Same time different crime next week and remember there isn't always liberty and justice for all especially if you don't tell people who you are yeah if you have no identity you get no justice you get i mean i guess you do somehow well, i mean you gotta be honest you gotta be honest and murder is bad <laughs> <laughs> goodbye bye